Hey, everybody. I, I can't believe we are here today at the 12th and final episode of Crafting with Ursula. I have so many feelings about it. One of them is simply that I couldn't imagine a better person to bring this series home than Neil Gaiman. Someone so deeply part of the world of genre fiction who has himself so deeply shaped it and who for decades has celebrated the writers and works he loves. Because this episode is the final installment, it has, unlike the others, a double purpose, I think. Like the others, it has its own topic, the power of story, of storytelling, of the imagination, and also the strange but vital relationship between story, the fantastic, the imagined, and what we call the real or reality. But also I wanted this last episode to be celebratory, too, for us to hear Le Guin's words, their intelligence, their music. And this is another reason Neil is the perfect final guest, because of his voice. Not because he is a voice actor. Yes, he was the voice of the crow in the Dream of a Thousand Cats episode of the Sandman series. Yes, he is supposed to voice the talking mongoose in the upcoming film Nandor, Fodor, and the Talking Mongoose. And yes, he was the voice of Neil Gaiman on The Simpsons. But I suspect many of us know Neil Gaiman's voice mainly from his narration of so many of his own books. So I posed a question on Twitter of what everyone's favorite short passages of Le Guin's were. Something unusually memorable either for its story or for its sound, its tone, or its emotion. And I collected these, and we chose some to read as we talked so that we could hear Le Guin's words woven through the episode, read to us by Neil Gaiman himself. Perhaps you'll even recognize a passage you yourself recommended. Indulge me for a moment while I mention what has come before today, just as a way to raise the names who have made this series what it is. Becky Chambers on creating aliens and alien cultures. Molly Gloss on writing The Clear, Clean Line. Isaac Yuen on writing nature and nature writing. Karen Joy Fowler on experimental women Animals, Science, and Story. Adrienne Marie Brown on Science Fiction and Social Justice. Kim Stanley Robinson on Ambiguous Utopias. William Alexander on Writing for Children. Julie Phillips on The Writing Mother. Lydia Yuknovich on The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction. Maria Devana Headley on feminist translation and classical retellings. Gabrielle Bellet, on the power of names, the power of naming, and the power of unnaming. And now today, Neil Gaiman, on word magic, 
and the power of telling stories. Back nearly two years ago now, in early 2021, when Theo Downs Le Guin approached me and floated the idea of doing a Le Guin-centric series to see what I'd think, it was really up to me. Theo wasn't suggesting we do it together, though he was an immense help in terms of brainstorming and suggestions, but it would be something I would do that he thought I would be good at doing. And at that point in my life, my life-work balance was terribly imbalanced, so much so that my partner worried about how much I was working. And I could imagine her at the time contemplating an intervention before this even came along as something to consider. And to consider working 50% more, putting out 36 episodes in a year rather than 24 because of these 12, no one would have advised me to do this, given how things were before I decided to. I wasn't going to earn 50% more. I wasn't going to earn anything more. But like the main show itself, between the covers, I've always led with desire, led with curiosity, and sometimes, like now, led with love. And then I would figure out all the practicalities later, all the problems as they arose. Originally, this show didn't have an end. At, at the beginning, I was simply inviting people who seemed like they would be great guests, either because they knew Le Guin or because they were influenced by her or because they had written about her, sometimes even all three. But as I hit the summer, I realized that following my desire and curiosity had led me into a life where I was sort of a walking podcast, and I wasn't sure actually how I'd make it to the end of the year. I decided then, with some sadness, that the show needed to be finite, that we'd journey together once around the sun for 12 months for 12 moons together, 12 vantage points into Le Guin's world. In the end, I think this was to the benefit of the show, having this constraint, because suddenly it wasn't simply about inviting great guests in the abstract. It was thinking about having a limited number of spots, a limited number of episodes, and then thinking, if this is going to be a portrait of the many facets of Ursula K. Le Guin, then we needed to start with the topic, with what topic or theme or angle had yet to be covered, and then find the best guest, rather than the other way around. I think it has sharpened and deepened the way this series has turned out. This series, Crafting with Ursula, is what I'm most proud of this year. Despite how much it's required, I have no regrets, which is a really great feeling. I wouldn't have done it differently. I wouldn't have made different choices. I feel like I've learned so much. I feel like we've even potentially created some new scholarship in the process. And it has been great to see an influx of new people, readers and writers, yes, but also anthropologists and other social scientists engaging with the show because of this Le Guin-centric series. 
I'm grieving a little bit today, maybe more than a little bit, but I'd rather the show end with people wanting more. And who knows, maybe someday in the future, we'll add new conversations to the series here and there. But for now, an era is coming to an end. But as a rabbi once told me, grief is the highest form of praise. And more than anything, today is about praise. If you're here for the first time because of Neil Gaiman, or perhaps you've been following this journey since last January, beginning with Becky Chambers, if these explorations have been an important part of your life in some way, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. There are benefits every supporter gets, a resource, rich email with each episode, full of things referenced, and other things to read and watch after you listen, participating in the collective brainstorm of future guests as well. And then there are a ton of other potential rewards, the bonus audio archive with readings by Ted Chang, N.K. Jemison, Carmen Maria Machado, Marlon James, Daniel Jose Older, and many others, becoming an early reader for Tin House, rare Le Guin collectibles, and more. Or maybe you just want to say, hey, David Naiman, this episode, or this year of episodes, has been valuable to me. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with none other than Neil Gaiman. The connection between what I do as a writer, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously to me words do make magic in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after ultimately is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as, as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest likely needs no introduction, but if we were to introduce him, where would we begin? With his first book, a biography of Duran Duran, followed by yet another biography, this time of Douglas Adams, or his early 1980s journalism, interviewing the likes of Frank Herbert, Clive Barker, and Arthur C. Clarke in adult men's magazines or even further back to his self-described feral childhood among the library stacks in England. But we're headed in the wrong direction now, 
having just finished this very year a glorious first season adaptation of the Sandman comic on Netflix, we could spend all this time talking about his work in comics. The Sandman, yes, the first comic to win a literary award, and so many others, Black Orchid, Swamp Thing, Technophage, Poison Ivy, Metamorpho, Miracle Man, and on and on. Or Gaiman's novels, his first Good Omens, co-written with Terry Pratchett, itself brought Good Omens. His first solo novel, Neverwhere, and many more, Stardust, American Gods, Anansi Boys, and The Ocean at the End of the Lane, to name just a very few. His work in film and television, writing the English language script for Princess Mononoke, writing episodes for Babylon 5 and Doctor Who, appearing as himself on The Simpsons, not to mention appearing in many songs by Tori Amos, or having his work adapted to the screen, whether the movie Coraline or the TV miniseries of American Gods or Good Omens, again, just to name a few. We should mention his writing for young readers, including The Graveyard Book, which itself is being adapted for the screen, and it would be a failure not to mention Gaiman's deep sense of being part of a community, just how much of his nonfiction is an appreciation of others, his idols, his influences, his peers, and more, whether Ray Bradbury or Lou Reed or G.K. Chesterton. I won't begin to list his awards, his innumerable Hugo, Eisner, and Locus Awards, and so many others, which certainly is housed in mass in its own house or tower, boat or cavern, private asteroid or orbiting satellite all to themselves. Neil Gaiman is heralded by so many of his peers, from Michael Chabon to Marlon James, George R. R. Martin to Margaret Atwood. As Atwood once said about Neil Gaiman, quote, Astrologically, Gaiman is a Scorpio, with Gemini rising, and if you go in for that sort of thing, as he must, because I found his horoscope online, this explains much. Scorpio is governed by Pluto, patron of the underworld, as well as of plumbing, underwear, the criminal underworld, and everything below the line. Gemini is ruled by Mercury, or Hermes, god of thieves, jokes, communication, travel, and secrets. In addition to which, he is the conductor of souls to the underworld. Most travel to the land of the dead is one way, but Hermes comes and goes as he pleases, and so do various protagonists in books by Neil Gaiman. In his role as Mercury or Hermes, ruler of communication and secrets, Neil Gaiman, on one very special day in 2014, held a very large secret, the day Ursula K. Le Guin was to receive a National Book Foundation Lifetime Achievement Award. The day she was going to use this platform this opportunity, not to say thank you so much, or not only, and not mainly this, but rather to speak truth to power in the world of corporate publishing, in the world of books as commodities and increasingly shaped as such, speaking truth to a power that was sitting right there below her podium when she did. Neil Gaiman knew she was about to deliver the speech that was heard around the world, one quoted very often, even now eight years later, because he was the one, like me today, tasked with the impossible task of introducing, of introducing Ursula K. Le Guin before she tore the fabric of the universe to show us a better one, one we could imagine into being together. So it is with great pleasure to welcome Neil Gaiman to Crafting with Ursula to discuss this very thing, 
the power of telling, the power of storytelling, the power of the imagination, and the fantastic, and the fantastically strange but vital relationship the imagination has to the real. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Neil Gaiman. Thank you so much, David. What an honor to be here. So as a way to begin, talk to us a little bit about the circumstances of your engagement with Le Guin as a reader, when you encountered her, how it affected you, and what has stuck with you or endured with you over time. You know, what? what's interesting for me is that the way that I encountered most of the writers that I fell in love with when I was young was I either encountered short stories by them and went, I love this short story writer. I will, I will seek them out some more and find a book by them. Or they were children's authors and I would discover them that way. Or their books would be on the shelves of my school library or the local library in the children's section. And I would go and find them there. But Ursula was none of these things. The first book of Ursula's that I bought uh, was The Left Hand of Darkness. And I would have been 11, maybe 12. And I bought it. It was in my local W.H. Smith's in the high street. And I bought it because on the cover, it said that it had won the Hugo Award. And big flash and a cover at least in memory one of those sort of strange chris foss sort of vaguely spaceshipy things winter landscape things and and i had no idea what this was about and took it home and read it and i now had a new favorite author and very soon i discovered because Within the next year, they brought it into print. I discovered the Earthsea books. And now I definitely had a new favorite author um, because she got me in all directions. She, she had the science fiction part of my head buzzing and excited, and she had the fantasy part of my head. Um, the children's fiction, the fantasy part, all thrilled and i knew that here was somebody that i had to learn from so that was that was where it began with us i remember reading the lathe of heaven um in my teens finding her earlier science fiction books and these wonderful little strange ace special ace double kind of editions in a in a weird little semi-pornographic bookshop <laughs> a second-hand bookshop called Plus Books in Streatham, where you got glared at by the men in the porn department if you walked through the porn department to get to the really dirty stuff they were ashamed of selling, which was the science fiction stuff in the back. Uh. Um, but uh, you'd go back there, and, and sometimes I'd get lucky and find, you know, Rock Cannon's World or whatever. Back there. In my early 20s, I discovered her as an essayist. And as an essayist, she, I discovered, had the remarkable ability to change my mind about things. 
I was somebody who was not necessarily certain of his opinions. But if I heard an opinion expressed with certainty, I would take that as an opinion. And it would be my opinion. And I'd think it was mine, even though it had come from somebody else. And reading Ursula, I just sort of dismantled a lot of the ways that my my you know 21 year old head thought by the time i was whatever 24 25 i remember the going into her essay about the use of the singular they uh going no 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 i have been to a meeting of the queen's english society where this was decried <laughs> i know what i think about singular they's and i came out of it going oh okay that that's what i think about the singular they and for that matter having never really thought about abortion other than vaguely thinking it was something bad that bad people did. I then read Ursula's essay on abortion and went, oh, okay, I've been thinking about this wrong my whole life and I, I have a new way of thinking and it is this way because somebody has explained. And she had a wonderful way of making the essays that she wrote personal. And I would disagree with her. Um, she was very rude about comics in a lot of those essays and viewing it as sort of the, the lowest place that a writer of fiction could sink. You know, you obviously had novelists at the top and then you had uh, people who wrote films and television somewhere in the middle. And then if you, if you, you know, if you descended to the bottom of the pond, you wrote comics. <laughs> um, and I, even at that time, was like, nope, you're wrong. You, I will write comics that will change your opinion. Um, I, I was very willing to go, I, I think you're right, I think you're wrong. But I was also very willing to have my opinion changed. And I knew that Ursula was somebody to learn from. In my head, she was... 25 foot high and probably glowed and uh i remember the first time i met her which was in a lift at the world fantasy convention i think the one in minneapolis in 1993 but it might have been one before that and she asked me if i knew where any room parties were and i don't think i was quite able to speak <laughs> Because this was Ursula Gwynn asking me an actual question. Over the years, we became more and more friendly. Um, and I think had actually become properly friends by the time that she died. Um, but I, I never lost that vast respect for her. I, I just always thought that this was somebody who really was special um, would go out and do things that nobody else was doing. I, I just ordered, just discovered. I, I love the way that with Ursula, you discover things late. So I just discovered that there's a new edition of Always Coming Home that has come out sometime in the last 40 years with more material in. So I, I just went off and ordered that. I'm very excited about reading more <laughs> Always Coming Home. And I find myself thinking about that book more than I think about most 
books that I read during that decade. It it still haunts me, and it's fundamentally plotless. It's a giant anthropological examination of some people in the future, people who are us if we make it through whatever we're trying to make it through now. Well, I think a, a fitting place to begin our discussion of why storytelling matters and the ways fantasy is very real is with the lines near the end of Le Guin's speech that you introduced. Her lines being, we live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable, but then so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, very often in our art, the art of words. By the art of words, she isn't speaking to the art of journalism or essay or criticism, all of which she partook in, but the art of the imagination, writing a world that imagines beyond what seems inescapable. When, when Le Guin says elsewhere, I think the imagination is the single most useful tool mankind possesses. It beats the opposable thumb. I can imagine living without my thumbs, but not without my imagination. It feels like she's putting forth the imagination as fundamental to what makes us what we are, that, um, that it might be the most true thing about us. And, and I feel like this is one deep way that you and Le Guin are kindred spirits. In your Library American tribute to her when speaking of her writing, you call it a magic of true speaking. And here again, we have the words magic and the words true side by side. And at the beginning of your masterclass course, which is a course on the art of storytelling, the art of fiction making, you begin this course with the notion of truth in fiction. For instance, you say of Coraline, fairy tales aren't true, they are more than true, not because they tell that dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be defeated. And furthermore, you say something that speaks to this mysterious interplay between imagining and reality, that all fiction needs to be as honest as it can be for you, that any success you have achieved is through being honest, being an honest writer of fiction, which perhaps I could rephrase as a truth teller in fiction, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about why fantasy or the imaginative non-mimetic fiction might be particularly well-equipped to tell or get at the truth i think there are i think you've you've managed to wrap up about 15 different questions in there and <laughs> that's I what i do and answer, <laughs> beautifully done and i will try and answer some of them okay great let's go to the very first one the fundamental idea i think of what we may as well call science fiction or speculative fiction but is basically the action of using the imagination to extrapolate in some way is to go things can be different and i think that that idea the idea of things can be different is a huge one as ursula said it's more important than opposable thumbs because that things can be different is the place we've grown everything good and many of the things bad about 
civilization. We've grown our countries. We've grown our worlds. But we've also, I think, avoided some pitfalls. And we've opened our minds. And very often, you're looking at something like the left hand of darkness, I took a huge, things can be different from it because I was 11, maybe 12. And as far as I was concerned, if there was one thing that was absolutely immutable, it was not just gender, but the idea of gender and the fact that the world was divided into two kinds of people and always had been. And there were the XY chromosome people over here and the XX chromosome people over there and the ones with the penises over in the XY corner and the ones with the vaginas over in the XX corner. And that, that I knew, and I knew that as a truth. And I knew that that had absolutely everything to do with how people behave. And suddenly I'm reading a novel that takes that idea and turns it upside down and turns it inside out. And at the age of 12, I come away from that novel going, things can be different. This is not, this is not set in stone. This is simply the way that things are, as I understand it, age 12, but things can be different. And that idea of change, whether literally in the case of something like the left hand of darkness or, or metaphorically and emotionally as with something like the ones who walk away from Omelas is the place where everything that Ursula taught me, I, I listened to. And if I've and if I do it right sometimes, and I know I don't always do it right, but if I do it right, I'm doing it there. I'm telling people that things can be different, even if I'm not a science fiction writer. And I'm telling them that there can be hope. And I'm telling them that they can change their own lives. And, and I can believe it. And hopefully I can open the door and they'll believe it too. Is the believing of it where the honest, being honest in fiction is, is coming in? I think the honesty in fiction is you have to be the most honest liar in the world in order for fiction to work. Because fiction is entirely a lie. You are asking people to care about people or animals, or ideas who have not existed, do not exist, will not exist in places that do not exist. And you are asking them to care. You're asking them to cry. You're asking them to laugh and to exult. And you're asking them even more than that to learn from people and things who don't exist. And you're beginning by saying this is a lie. Mm. One of the things that fascinated me 
about seeing my book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, turned into a play in the UK by the National Theatre, was sitting at the very first run-through. This play has never been run through before. It's not being run through on a stage at this point. It's in a rehearsal room at the back of the National Theatre. Not all of the props are there. None of the theatrical magic is being put on. No lighting, no effects. And it's 10 minutes before the end. And I realize that there are tears dripping out of my eyes and down my cheeks. And I'm embarrassed because there's all of the lights are on in this rehearsal space. Everybody can see. So I'm very sort of as discreetly as I can, I'm flicking the the tears off my face. And I thought, okay, well, that was a strange thing to happen, especially when it's my book, but maybe I was just overcome by something but it's not going to happen when it's really happening. And then I'm at the first night of the show and I'm sitting between my wife who is crying and a hard bitten theater journalist. And I can see tears dripping <sighs> off his face onto his notebook. And I'm, I didn't cry. It wasn't crying. Then I cried at a different point that night. And I thought, okay, this is so strange because we're in a space where we are all agreed. We know that these actors are just actors. We know none of this is happening. And yet we are choosing to believe. We're choosing to go along with it. And we're being moved by it. I, I talked earlier, I mentioned the short story of the ones who walk away from Omelas. As a, uh, as a professor at Bard College, which I am, I always teach that story and i love teaching that story i love getting uh students to read it aloud and love getting under the hood of it with them and one of the things that's so amazing about the first two pages of what is basically a three and a half page story is she says to you at the very beginning. This is just a thought experiment. And she enlists you into it. She's she's saying, okay, imagine, you know, what, what's your favorite city? What would that look like? You help me build this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at one point she says, I didn't think there were going to be any drugs in here, but maybe there would be. And if you want some, they can be and stuff. You're, <laughs> you're, you're part of the, um, you've been enlisted by her into the action of invention. So she's telling you, this is just a thought experiment. This is just something we're making up. And then she blindsides you. And now you're in a cellar with a child who is being abused so that everything else can be wonderful. And that equation is one that you can then take with you from the story out into real life. And you can go, well, okay. Where are the places where 
that is happening? Where are the places where, yes, there are a lot of happy people here living in utopia, but in order for this to happen, what's happening over here? And you start looking and you're seeing things differently. And that, that for me is the gift that Ursula can give and that the imagination gives, which is you're seeing things differently. You're thinking about things differently. You found something that is absolutely a lie. And yet, as you peel back the lie, what remains is absolute and utter truth. And there are all sorts of absolute and utter truths contained in the ones who walk away from Amalus. Well, one of the reasons that fantasy hasn't had its own episode until now is not because it isn't fundamental to understanding Le Guin's writing. It definitely comes up when I speak to Karen Joy Fowler and Isaac Yuen when we're talking about writing into the consciousness of animals and also writing the natural world in a way that isn't decorative but alive with agency. And it comes up when I speak to Kim Stanley Robinson and Becky Chambers when we talk about how a lot of our science fiction stories and novels are more like fantasies set in space in many ways. But but I think the main reason we center fantasy now at the very end is because when I spoke to William Alexander for the series about writing for children, you come to realize how deeply she connects the intelligence of children to the world of the fantastic. And it became a, a, a central to what we talked about. Not to say that most fantasies are, are children's literature or that all children's literatures are fantasies this isn't this is clearly not true and she wasn't arguing that but it feels like not only does she have a deep respect for an intelligence unique to childhood but but i think she felt like the fantastic for most of human history has been the main way we have told stories and that it might be hardwired into us in some way and i'm just going to read a, a quote of hers so this is Le Guin. I believe that maturity is not an outgrowing, but a growing up, that an adult is not a dead child, but a child who has survived. I believe that all the best faculties of a mature human being exist in the child, and that if these faculties are encouraged in youth, they will act wisely and well in the adult, but if they are repressed and denied in the child, they will stunt and cripple the adult personality. And finally, I believe that one of the most deeply human and humane of these faculties is the power of the imagination, so that it is our pleasant duty as librarians or teachers or parents or writers or simply as grown-ups to encourage that faculty of imagination in our children, to encourage it to grow freely, to flourish like the green bay tree by giving it the best, absolutely the best and purest nourishment that it can absorb, and never, under any circumstances, to squelch it or sneer at it or imply that it is childish or unmanly or untrue. And I know you yourself have talked about how we as humans seem to have an innate ability to take truth from fiction. And you've talked about drawing maps as a child inspired by the maps of Earthsea. But I wondered if this provokes any thoughts for you about the child's mind in relation to stories and storytelling. My son is seven and last night i went into his bedroom to put him to bed and he was sitting industriously drawing a comic and i said what are you drawing and he said it's my new comic crazy man 2 
Crazy man versus the smart shark. And I said, how smart is the smart shark? And he said, I will, I will show you. And he held up the cover and he said, you can see that it's a shark because I've written done, 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 done down the side. He said, um, and also the fins and the teeth. He said, and you can see that it's smart because it's wearing a hat. <laughs> and I, I just sort of melted in delight at the idea of the smart shark. You can tell that it's smart because it's wearing a hat. And I love that that's where his imagination goes. I, I fervently believe that we have to encourage the act of imagining. It's not only utilitarian in that everything that we see, everything around us, has been imagined. There was a period of, you know, about 800,000 years-ish when we don't really know what people were imagining because they haven't left a lot of records. We, we have hand axes. We know that things like string may have existed back then. We have some very old examples of string, but mostly anything soft would have rotted. So the things that are left tend to be the rocks, which are things that can survive half a million years, 200,000 years. But I wonder what they imagined, because they were us. And I wonder what kind of effort it took for the first one of them to go, you know, this flint that I picked up is really useful, but if I could just chip a little more off it, it would be more useful. And I think sometimes children's brains, children's minds will go down new and unvisited roads, uh, find their own way, find their own paths in ways that adults don't. We're used to doing it a certain way and we do it that way and we know that's the right way to do it. Kids, I think, are capable of seeing it differently. There's that lovely Douglas Adams quote where he, he basically says that if memory serves, that technology is the stuff that's turned up that you weren't a kid when it was around. Anything that was around when you were a kid isn't technology, it's furniture. And I think the great thing about furniture is you can rearrange it and our kids will be rearranging it. <laughs> One other thing I'd, I'd point to in that Ursula quote, which I think is so interesting, where she says, you know, you don't squelch it and you don't squelch the imagination, but you also let kids find the stuff that ignites their imagination wherever they're going to find it. There are a lot of things I read as a kid that I loved that were huge and important to me that when I went back to them, in my teens or my 20s or my 30s, there was nothing there. The thing that had excited me wasn't there to excite me as an adult or 
as an adult, I'd seen it done much better, or I could see that this was not done well or whatever. But as a kid, you don't care about that because this is the first time you've ever encountered this concept, this idea, this thing. And it it's all stuff that is going into the magical compost heap in your head and rotting down to produce the fertile soil out of which you, as a teenager, you as an adult, um, you're going to happen. And I think that we can police our children too much. But by the same token, I love what Ursula did for kids, which was write really good fiction for them. The oddness for me of the Earthsea books is still that basically you get three fabulous books that are really kind of aimed at young readers. And then you get a set of fabulous books aimed at older readers mm -hmm. that are actually much more about what it's like to be old, what it's like to have come home from the heroing, what it's like to be on the other side. And I love the fact that nobody writes those fantasy novels and yet, Yet Ursula did. Well, another quote of Le Guin's goes, fantasy is true, of course. It isn't factual, but it's true. Children know that. Adults know it too, and that's precisely why many of them are afraid of fantasy. They know that its truth challenges, even threatens, all that is false, all that is phony, unnecessary, and trivial in the life they have let themselves be forced into living. They are afraid of dragons because they are afraid of freedom. In this spirit, I was hoping you would read a brief excerpt from the first of the Earthsea books, uh, A Wizard of Earthsea, when Ged, our boy wizard, encounters the dragon. I would love to. So excited to read something by her. How loud. No creature moved, nor voice spoke for a long while on the island but only the waves beat loudly on the shore. Then Ged was aware that the highest tower slowly changed its shape, bulging out on one side as if it grew an arm. He feared dragon magic, for old dragons are very powerful and guileful in sorcery, like and unlike the sorcery of men. But a moment more, and he saw this was no trick of the dragon, but of his own eyes. What he had taken for a part of the tower was the shoulder of the dragon of Pendor, as he uncurled his bulk and lifted himself slowly up. When he was all afoot, his scaled head, spike-crowned and triple-tongued, rose higher than the broken tower's height, and his taloned forefeet rested on the rubble of the town below. His scales were grey-black, catching the daylight like a broken stone. Lean as a hound he was, and huge as a hill. Ged stared in awe. There was no song or tale could prepare the mind for this sight. Almost he stared into the dragon's eyes and was caught, for one cannot look into a dragon's eyes. 
He glanced away from the oily green gaze that watched him and held up before him his staff that looked now like a splinter, like a twig. That's so great. When you were in conversation with Kazuo Ishiguro, you brought up the very public irritation Le Guin had regarding his book, The Buried Giant, a book that was his first foray into fantasy. And she took exception to the following words that he said in an interview in the New York Times. Will readers follow me into this? Will they understand what I'm trying to do? Or will they be prejudiced against the surface elements? Are they going to say this is fantasy? She felt like the, are they going to say this is fantasy was a worry of Ishiguro's from a place of genre snobbery that God forbid his work of literature would be called fantasy. But he responded to Le Guin's comments, both in your conversation and elsewhere, saying, if there's some sort of battle line being drawn for and against ogres and pixies appearing in books, I am on the side of ogres and pixies. And Le Guin, after his remarks, she walked back her statement happy to let him speak for himself, happy to learn she was mistaken, that he wasn't disrespecting the genre. But she also says some interesting things that I wish we could follow up with her about, such as, I wish I hadn't flown off the handle at what I took for a sneer at the literature of fantasy, offending him so that I suppose he and I will never be able to discuss such issues as his remarks make me long to ask him about. For instance, if I said I was on the side of dragons, but not really on the side of pixies, would that interest him at all? Would he be interested in talking about the various definitions of the word fantasy as inclusive of most imaginative literature, as I use the word, or as limited to a modern commercial development in fiction and the media, as I think he was using the word? I, I bring this up because this was a huge thing for Le Guin throughout her life, defending fantasy, science fiction, children's literature on their own terms as, as literature. And the last time Le Guin and I met for the show, the third time, we were at her house in the upstairs reading room with her cat Pard coming in and out to see what was up. And at the very end of that conversation, I have her read a piece of hers that does a lot of things. It enacts the power of story, I think, and storytelling, while also being a defense of this type of story in a particularly sharp and formidable way that I think epitomizes Le Guin. In your Paris Review tribute to her, you say, the thing about Ursula K. Le Guin was that she didn't actually look like a rabble-rousing, bomb-throwing, dangerous woman. She had a gentle smile, as if she was either enjoying herself or enjoying what the people around her were doing. She was kind, but firm. She was petite and gray-haired, and she appeared, at least on first inspection, harmless. The illusion of harmlessness ended the moment you began to read her words, or if you were so lucky, the moment you listened to her speak. She was opinionated, but the opinions were informed and educated. She did not suffer fools or knaves gladly, or actually, at all. So perhaps... This will help explain why she sees herself on the side of dragons, but not on the side of pixies. But I'm going to play this, this wondrous five-minute stretch of Ursula telling a story for us. Maybe this is a good time to have you read on serious literature. 
It's on page 45. Hey. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't think what it was. <laughs> okay. Well, it, it's a, it comes from a review. This piece is a response to a review by Ruth Franklin in Slate in May of 2007. And she wrote of the book she was reviewing, Michael Chabon has spent considerable energy trying to drag the decaying corpse of genre fiction out of the shallow grave where writers of serious literature abandoned it. Something woke her in the night. This is me now. Responding. Something woke her in the night. Was it steps she heard coming up the stairs, somebody in wet training shoes climbing the stairs very slowly? But who? And why wet shoes? It hadn't rained. There again, the heavy, soggy sound. But it hadn't rained for weeks. It was only sultry. The air close with a cloying hint of mildew or rot, sweet rot like very old Finocchiona are. Perhaps liverwurst gone green. There again, the slow, squelching, sucking steps and the foul smell was stronger. Something was climbing her stairs, coming closer to her door. As she heard the click of heel bones that had broken through the rotting flesh, she knew what it was. But it was dead, dead. God damn that, Shabon, dragging it out of the grave where she and the other serious writers had buried it to save serious literature from its polluting touch. The horror of its blank, pustular face, the lifeless, meaningless glare of its decaying eyes. What did the fool think he was doing? Had he paid no attention at all to the endless rituals of the serious writers and their serious critics, the formal expulsion ceremonies, the repeated anathemata, the stakes driven over and over through the heart, the vitriolic sneers, the endless solemn dances on the grave? Did he not want to preserve the virginity of Yaddo? Had he not even understood the importance of the distinction between sci-fi and counterfactual fiction? Could he not see that Cormac McCarthy although everything in his book, except for the wonderfully blatant use of an egregiously obscure vocabulary, was remarkably similar to a great many earlier works of science fiction about men crossing the country after Holocaust, could never be, <laughs> back, to, back to Gormick McCarthy, could never under any circumstances be said to be a sci-fi writer, because Cormac McCarthy was a serious writer, and so by definition incapable of lowering himself to commit genre. Could it be that Chabon, just because some mad fools gave him a Pulitzer, had forgotten the sacred value of the word mainstream? No, she would not look at the thing that had squelched its way into her bedroom, and now stood over her reeking of rocket fuel and kryptonite, creaking like an old mansion on the moors in a weathering wind, its brain rotting like a pear from within, dropping little gray cells through its ears. But its call on her attention was somehow imperative, and as it stretched out its hand to her, she saw on one of the half-putrefied fingers a fiery 
golden ring. She moaned. How could they have buried it in such a shallow grave and then just walked away, abandoning it? Dig it deeper, dig it deeper, she'd screamed, but they hadn't listened to her. And now, where were they, all the other serious writers and critics, when she needed them? Where was her copy of Ulysses? All she had on her bedside table was a Philip Roth novel she'd been using to prop up the reading lamp. She pulled the slender volume free and raised it up between her and the ghastly golem. But it was not enough. Not even Roth could save her. The monster laid its squamous hand on her, and the ring branded her like a burning coal. Genre breathed its corpse breath in her face, and she was lost. She was defiled. She might as well be dead. She would never, ever get invited to write for Granta now. <laughs> I just adore that piece, Ursula. That it's must have been mean, so. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> must have been so fun to write. Oh, it was. It was. Yes. Revenge is sweet. <laughs> Do you know that piece, Neil? I, if I ever heard it, um, if I'd ever, if I'd ever read it, hearing it like that uh, was was utterly new. But I don't think I'd ever read it before. I put it this way: I was laughing such a lot when she was reading it. it it's it's wonderful and what i love is that ursula was fierce in her defense of genre and it's also one of those things where i grew up like michael shabon born in the 1960s reading in the 60s and and 70s and reading in a world that the the new wave had happened in, writers like Zelazny and Delaney, like Ursula, like J.G. Ballard, had, as far as I was concerned, already demonstrated that in every possible way that counted, that this was literature and it could do things that other literature couldn't do. But Ursula grew up in a time when there was no Chip Delaney writing. Mm. Uh, there was no Zelazny. There were no. There was no New Wave. There was no Ballard. She was one of those people who took, who went, okay. There's literature over here, and there's science fiction over here, and it's all one thing. And there are things that science fiction can do better than mimetic fiction. And let's see what those things are. Let's use fantasy. Let's use science fiction and let's tell our stories and let's make them stories that count. And let's write them as well as anybody out there is writing. And I, you know, there is a level on which I feel like she really proved her point by writing the books. You don't get a generation who's grown up reading, for example, the Earthsea books going, oh, yeah, fantasy doesn't matter because we read Earthsea and we know about true names. And of course it matters. Could we hear one paragraph from her essay from Elfland to Poughkeepsie? Of course you can. I remember the first time I read 
this essay. At that time, I had no idea who, what, or where a Poughkeepsie was. I had to figure <laughs> it out from the essay itself. So I knew a lot more of Elfland than Poughkeepsie. And it's a fascinating, for, for anyone who hasn't read it, the essay itself is utterly fascinating because it's really about the use of language and dialogue and high speech and low speech and formal and informal speech. And when you're in Elfland and when you're in Poughkeepsie and she eviscerates in it a particular bad writer whose books I'd very much enjoyed at that point because I wasn't reading the writer as a bad writer. I was just reading them as a writer and I was enjoying the books. But I loved the evisceration, not because she was talking about or making fun of or, or particularly picking holes in another writer, but because I learned things from that essay about the languages, high and low, of fantasy that have stood me in good shape ever since. About when you want to be an Elfland and when you want to be in Poughkeepsie, and about sometimes the importance of being in Poughkeepsie. And this is the essay extract. What is fantasy? On one level, of course, it is a game, a pure pretense with no ulterior motive whatever. It is one child saying to another child, let's be dragons. And then they're dragons. For an hour or two. It is escapism of the most admirable kind, the game played for the game's sake. On another level, it is still a game, but a game played for very high stakes. Seen thus as art, not spontaneous play, its affinity is not with daydream, but with dream. It is a different approach to reality, an alternative technique for apprehending and coping with existence. It is not anti-rational, but para-rational, not realistic, but surrealistic, super-realistic, a heightening of reality. In Freud's terminology, it employs primary, not secondary, process thinking. It employs archetypes, which Jung warned us are dangerous things. Dragons are more dangerous and a good deal commoner than bears. Fantasy is nearer to poetry, to mysticism, and to insanity than naturalistic fiction is. It is a real wilderness, and those who go there should not feel too safe. And their guides, the writers of fantasy, should take their responsibilities seriously. Well, extending those thoughts, thinking about how Le Guin connects fantasy here to both poetry and wilderness, I love how she's continually finding ways to reveal or assert connections between the imagined and the real. For instance, she says, Science describes accurately from outside. Poetry describes accurately from inside. Science explicates. Poetry implicates. Both celebrate what they describe. We need the languages of both science and poetry to save us 
from merely stockpiling endless information that fails to inform our ignorance or our irresponsibility. And she also connects fantasy with science when she says, there really is nothing to fear in fantasy unless you're afraid of the freedom of uncertainty. This is why it's hard for me to imagine that anyone who likes science can dislike fantasy. Both are based so profoundly on the admission of uncertainty, the welcoming acceptance of unanswered questions. Of course, the scientist seeks to ask how things are the way they are, not to imagine how they might be otherwise, but are the two operations opposed or related? We can't question reality directly, only by questioning our conventions, our belief, our orthodoxy, our construction of reality. All Galileo said, all Darwin said was, it doesn't have to be the way we thought it was. And I wanted to connect this impulse of hers, to connect science and art, the real and the imagined, to your words. I I love the talk you gave for the Long Now Foundation, where you say that the oldest animal alive is probably around 300 years old, The oldest creature, a tree, is probably around 5,000 years old. But that stories live longer than that, that there are stories that have lived and continue to live today and endure um, that are the longest living thing on the planet, essentially, longer than any of the other living things. That if we were simply telling each other non-fictional information, that sort of information would only survive a couple generations. But it's something about story that allows it to live like this. And that the qualities that living things have, that they grow, that they reproduce, that they have functional activity, and that they continually change are all things shared by stories. That stories are perhaps unusually useful in engaging with deep time and long and the long now. I love thinking of stories this way as creatures and as living beings. And you also point to the way stories mutate and or evolve as part of their survival. And I was wondering if you would share with us an example of that or any other thoughts about stories as as living, breathing entities in this way. I remember the point that I started following down the train of thought that led to that talk. I was reading a book about myth, and it talked about the myths of some Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest, and and a myth about how a story that was told and was collected by the kind of people who go out collecting stories about a hundred years ago, and it was about mountains and a sort of Romeo and Juliet story with some angry gods involved and uh, what they did to the mountains when this young woman ran off with the wrong person and how, first of all, the mountains turned to ash and then boiling mud was sent out from the tops of these mountains and the earth shuddered, and when that didn't do it, then the inside of the mountain turned into flame, and the flame came out, and they they were only able to quell it by throwing this unfortunate young lady into the mountain. And 
what's fascinating about that is that we can date that. We know when the mountains in question last had a volcanic incident. So we can we can actually go, well, this really happened. And it would have followed the pattern described here. What fascinated me about that was going, okay, if you want to tell not just your children, but your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren something very big and very important, which is these mountains, uh, they look really solid, but if these things happen, you know, if the air starts filling with ash, get away, because the next thing is the boiling mud, and after that, uh, you've got lava coming. If you tell your children, and they look up at the hills and go, well, they seem very solid, and they tell their grandchildren, and those grandchildren told those grandchildren, at that point, you've had six or seven generations who know that this is all very solid and it doesn't really happen. And it's kind of like being warned if you live in the middle of a city about, you know, telling your children how to scare away bears in case of a bear attack. There will come a point where you go, you know, this this information is not needed. I live in the middle of New York. I don't need to know how to scare bears away and make myself big and make a loud noise and stuff. But if you put it in the shape of a story, and you put it in the shape of a story which has people in it, so you can care about the people, then the knowledge gets transmitted along with the story. And now you have something that is over 10,000 years old that may well have wound up saving lives. And that wasn't necessarily what it was built to do, but it's something that it has done and it's lasted. And thinking about that produced the the talk for the long now, partly because people are now trying to think about ways to warn our descendants about poisonous places kind of places that Ursula talks about and mentions in her beautiful book. I call it a novel, but I don't think it is a novel. Always Coming Home, because we are creating poisons. We're creating poisonous places. And we need to tell people who are coming 5,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, that these places are poisonous. So how do we do that? And one of the answers is just, we create stories. We create stories to tell them that these are places to be avoided. We create stories to tell them to go away. And we create stories that may actually, really and truly save their lives. Well, thinking about how stories, if alive, mutate and change, I wanted to talk about authors who mutate and change as Le Guin in particular has this desire over time, as you've already referred to, to go back into her worlds and, and change them, sometimes radically. She does this both in the Hainish cycle and in Earthsea. And Will Alexander has this great essay in Strange Horizons called A Revisionist History of Earthsea, where he looks at how she does this 
and also sort of marvels at her ability to do it, especially in fantasy, which is supposed to rely on eternal truths. Um, Will says, how does this author get away with such drastic reimaginings without losing the trust and loyalty of her audience? And he quotes her as saying, enchantment alters with age and with the age. Le Guin herself does a deep dive into this in what I think is a remarkable foreword to the tales of Earthsea, where she says, the way one does research into non-existent history is to tell the story and find out what happened. I believe this isn't very different from what historians of the so-called real world do. When you construct or reconstruct a world that never existed, a wholly fictional history, the research is of a somewhat different order, but the basic impulse and techniques are much the same. You look at what happens and try to see why it happens. You listen to what the people there tell you and watch what they do. You think about it seriously, and you try to tell it honestly so that the story will have weight and make sense. And then she adds, In the years since I began to write about Earthsea, I've changed, of course, and so have the people who read the books. And then I think she echoes your long now speech when she says, Imagination, like all living things, lives now, and it lives with, from, on true change. Like all we do and have, it can be co-opted and degraded, but it survives commercial and didactic exploitation. The land outlasts the empires. The conquerors may leave desert where there was forest and meadow, but the rain will fall, the rivers will run to the sea. The unstable, mutable, untruthful realms of once upon a time are as much a part of human history and thought as the nations in our kaleidoscopic atlases, and some are more enduring. And she ends the foreword with the words, These are reports of my explorations and discoveries, tales from Earthsea for those who have liked or think they might like the place, and who are willing to accept these hypotheses. Things change. Authors and wizards are not always to be trusted. Nobody can explain a dragon. I wondered if this provoked any thoughts for you about this impulse of hers, which does in some ways feel like an act of magic, but also one of generosity and collectivity and perhaps responsibility. Absolutely. I've had to do something a little bit like that recently, working on taking Sandman, which first saw print 34 years ago, which meant that it's I first started working on it about 36 years ago, and making that into television for now, and sometimes going, okay, the world has changed. I've changed. I'm, I'm more of a softy than I was then. I was much more willing to throw the children to the wolves if it made a good story. And I find it much harder to to do that now, which means that Sandman, by its nature, is going to be ever so slightly kinder. Um, and there are going to be more women in it because 
36 years on, I look around and go, one of the things I learned writing Sandman was to ask myself where the women were. And they weren't there in the first 10 episodes of Sandman, really, the first 10 comics. And I need to bring them in. I need to make this work more. So so you really, you know, you get to reinspect. But that was weird for me because I was retelling stories that already existed. I wasn't actually doing what Ursula did, which fascinates me, which is going, okay, here are these three stories. Here is a trilogy. Um, the story of Ged and his shadow. And that story got told, but the world continues. And what happens after heroes come home? And why aren't there any old women in fantasy as heroines? And what is the magic? You know, magic in Earthsea is male, really. Well, what is the magic of women and how does that work? And who and what are the dragons of Earthsea? Um, and, and I love that she just sort of, she looked at what she wanted to write. She looked at the story she wanted to tell from her vantage point and then consequences be damned, she told it. In the mid eighties, there was a sort of a fashion for authors to take books that have been written 20, 30, 40 years before and suddenly to write sequels to them. It tended to feel like this was just sort of going back and and exploiting something, bringing something back from the dead. Um, you know, there was nobody on the planet who was crying out for Isaac Asimov to write more foundation books because there wasn't really any more to, to say. And then he wrote more foundation books and they just reminded you that the ones he'd written in the 40s were really quite good. And the ones he was writing in the 80s were not worthy of him. Um, but they, you felt like there were books that were being written because publishers suddenly realized that they could cash in. And Tahanu was not that, and the books that came after it were not that. This was Ursula, as a mature author, realizing, A, she had more to say, and B, there were things she disagreed with. There were places where she'd thought about it. There were places where people had registered their own displeasure or discomfort with things that she had written in the 1960s that here she was in the 1990s going, actually, I think they're right. And I think that's who I am now and how I think. And I love the fact that, that we get to do that as artists. I tend not to write sequels, but there are definitely times when I can imagine myself writing a sequel because I go, well, I might have more to say or something else to say, or I might have got it wrong. Or perhaps I may have learned something since I wrote this book and feel that I have things to correct. And I can absolutely see me doing 
doing sequels, going into that place again, um, and trying to fix what I got wrong and trying to say it correctly this time. Mm. All, but always in the notion and in the knowledge that art, I, I used to have a friend who was an artist who was always trying to do things the one true way and would be very, very dissatisfied with whatever they'd done three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, because that was not the one true way. They were on to making things the one true way. And I, who never knew what the one true way to anything was, always stared at this slightly baffled, because for me, you threw mud at a wall and hoped that you'd make a pretty picture and then you'd go in with your fingers and sort of shape it a bit. And with luck, you'd have made a really good picture on the wall with the, the mud that you threw. And if it worked, great. And if it didn't work, fair enough. You're on to the next, throw it next mud and the next piece of unmudded wall. So there's definitely part of me that goes, it's not really a progression, even though artists think it is. I'm sure from Ursula's, you know, perspective, going through time, something like what she did with Ursi was very much a progression. You did stuff back here. You thought you did it well at the time, but now you've grown, you've learned, you're going to make something different. But to use a analogy of, of Chip Delaney's, I think it, it's much more like a, a hologram. Um, if you smash a hologram, you don't get, you know, a, a bit of face over here and a bit of knee over here and a bit of foot on this piece of the smashed hologram. What you get is the hologram in all the smashed pieces, just kind of out of focus, just not as clear. And I feel like that really is you know, we're still the same person all the way through. And when we make art, we're making art that is right for that time. And that somebody else picks up the books, doesn't know the order they were written in, is going to find whatever they find in the stories, which isn't what we put in there. You know, we can go, I... I can go, I want you to read Coraline because I want you to understand bravery. And maybe some people will, but a hundred people can read Coraline and take a hundred things out of it. And that's right. That's the glory of fiction. That's the power of it. That's, you know, that's a feature, not a bug. Well, the last guest on this in the series was Gabrielle Bellot, who came on to talk about the powers of names and the power of naming and, and unnaming. But she's written a lot about you. I think in this sort of fascination around returning to the work of Sandman, and she she's really on board with the way you've reimagined the casting, for instance, in the adaptation. But she explores the complexities of that, and she also explores gender in relation to death and some of the complexity around the portrayal of Wanda, the transgender character. But in both of the essays that I've read of hers about you, she quotes you twice, and I just wanted to read them because I loved both. In The View from the Cheap Seats, you say, 
literature does not exist in a vacuum. It has to be a conversation and new people, new readers need to be brought into that conversation too. And then she quotes you when you were asked in 2003 to summarize the Sandman in 25 words or less. And you say, the Lord of dreams learns that one must change or die and makes his decision. Which is so great. Both things I said and, uh, both things I'd stand by. Yeah. Speaking of dreams, let's hear the opening passage from the lathe of heaven. Of course. I think one of the first books I ever read to take dreaming seriously and also to take the idea of how you solve problems and that simple solutions to complex problems will not always give you the solution that you might have been hoping for. Current born, wave flung, tugged hugely by the whole might of ocean, the jellyfish drifts in the tidal abyss. The light shines through it and the dark enters it. Born, flung, tugged from anywhere to anywhere, for in the deep sea there is no compass but nearer and farther, higher and lower. The jellyfish hangs and sways. Pulses move slight and quick within it as the vast diurnal pulses beat in the moon-driven sea. Hanging, swaying, pulsing, the most vulnerable and insubstantial creature. It has for its defense the violence and power of the whole ocean to which it has entrusted its being, its going, and its will. But here rise the stubborn continents. The shelves of gravel and the cliffs of rock break from water boldly into air, that dry, terrible outer space of radiance and instability where there is no support for life. And now, now the currents mislead and the waves betray, breaking their endless circle to leap up in loud foam against rock and air breaking. What will the creature, made all of sea drift, do on the dry sand of daylight? What will the mind do each morning, waking? Well, one of the things that I cover with Will Alexander, Karen Joy Fowler, and Isaac Yuen is about one definition Le Guin gives of realistic fiction versus fantasy in that the former, for her, moves toward anthropocentrism and the latter away from it. And in that light, she says, realism in fiction is a recent literary invention, not much older than the steam engine and probably related to it. In her essay, Some Thoughts on Narrative, she says, narrative is a stratagem of mortality. It is a means, a way of living, it does not seek immortality. It does not seek to triumph over or escape from time as lyric poetry does. It asserts, affirms, participates in directional time, time experienced, 
time as meaningful, which again seems to put forth story as a living thing. And in one of my favorite of her short stories, Faster Than Empires and More Slow, there's the line, we all have forests in our minds, forests unexplored, unending. Each of us gets lost in the forest every night alone. I wanted to bring this back to the beginning of our talk with regards to fiction and truth, and perhaps in regards to fiction and our responsibility to others, both strangers and strange creatures. These quotes make me think that if the imagination is in the now, that perhaps it is also a weird intersection between a dreaming of a future we aren't living, like Ursula's speech imagining the end of capitalism, and a reaching back into an ancestral ocean that is much more than human, like the jellyfish at the opening of The Lathe of Heaven, a passage that ends with the question, what will the mind do each morning waking? This all made me think of your speech at COP26, the United Nations Climate Conference, where you talk about the oldest art in the world, the handprints of probably Neanderthal children on the Tibetan plateau from 200,000 years ago, where you imagine us walking back into relation with the rest of the planet again, saying, we need to change the world back again, and that will take science, but it will also take art to convince, to inspire, and to build a future. We need to reach people's hearts, not just their minds. Reach the part of their hearts that believes it's good to plant trees for our grandchildren to sit beneath. Reach hearts to make people want to change and to react to people and organizations despoiling the planet and the climate in the same way you would react to someone trying to burn down your house while you're living in it. So that 200,000 years from now, children can leave handprints in clay to show us that they were here, and because making handprints and footprints is fun. I wondered if you had any final thoughts about story or, or final thoughts about Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, I hope, I hope our story is a good one. I, I worry right now very much about humanity. I worry that the tools that we have built to make our lives easier, make our lives more pleasant, are messing things up to a degree that we will find it difficult to come back from. But one of the nice things that fiction gives you, or at least that science fiction and fantasy give you, is you do tend to take a kind of wide view. And if people have actually messed things up, that's fine in its own way. Maybe we won't be here 200,000 years from now. Maybe we've done terrible damage that it will take tens of millions of years to recover from. But the Earth is long. It'll be around here for a long time. Life is tenacious. We've learned that. And I find myself these days so much more interested in the 800,000 odd years before what we call recorded history than I am in the, whatever it is, 10,000 years of recorded history. 
I get fascinated by people. What were we like? What did we do? And, and on that basis, knowing that those people on the one hand were us, and on the other hand, that they were impossibly alien, I get fascinated by the idea of what are we leaving behind? Are the ones who come after? Will our stories live? I hope so. I I would like to have scribbled something that will stick around for a while on the wall, but I'm not egotistic enough to think that I actually know what it's likely to be. And, you know, it's absolutely possible that I could turn up in a hundred years from now and go into whatever remains that would we would recognize as some kind of library and say, you know, do you have any Neil Gaiman? And they'd look at me and say, no, nothing at all. And then some very old person would say, hang on, didn't he write that book about the little panda who sneezed? <laughs> and everyone would go, oh my gosh, he wrote that, yes. And I could, I could be, I'd be fine with that. I love the idea that something lasts. <laughs> yes. Well, let's go out with a reading from Always Coming Home. Oh, yes. Now, you've suggested two pieces. Can I do both of them? Did I suggest two? You did. You have an alternate. You have, oh, you yeah. have the alternate. Do you want Always to do Coming both? Home reading, and you have an alternate as well. And I'd love to do both of them. One is poetry and one is prose. So this is a little bit of Always Coming Home that's prose. When I take you to the valley, You'll see the blue hills on the left and the blue hills on the right, the rainbow and the vineyards under the rainbow late in the rainy season. And maybe you'll say, there it is, that's it. But I'll say, a little farther. We'll go on, I hope, and you'll see the roofs, the little towns and the hillsides yellow with wild oats, a buzzard soaring, and a woman singing by the shadows of a creek in the dry season. And maybe you'll say, let's stop here. This is it. But I'll say, a little farther yet. We'll go on, and you'll hear the quail calling on the mountain by the springs of the river. And looking back, you'll see the river running downward through the wild hills behind, below. And you'll say, isn't that the valley? And all I will be able to say is, drink this water of the spring. Rest here a while. We have a long way yet to go, and I can't go without you. And all the way through, always coming home. There are poems, or perhaps there's songs, but we don't get the tunes. And this is one of them. Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your map and the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. 
May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us. Return to us. Be always coming home. Thank you for bringing this series home, Neil Gaiman. It was a real honor, pleasure, and delight to spend the time together. Uh, That was just, that was magic, David. Thank you. I loved it. We are talking today to Neil Gaiman. You've been listening to the 12th episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Neil Gaiman's work can be found at neilgaiman.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include the bonus audio archive with readings from everyone from Daniel Jose Older to N.K. Jemison, Ted Chang to Carmen Maria Machado. There are also rare Le Guin collectibles. The possibility of joining the Tin House Early Reader Program, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Or having me select books for you and then send them your way. Or writing consultations from past guests and much, much more. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Neil Gaiman, Gabrielle Bellant, Maria Devana Headley, Lydia Yuknovich, Julie Phillips, William Alexander, Kim Stanley Robinson, Adrian Marie Brown, Karen Joy Fowler, Isaac Yuen, Molly Gloss, and Becky Chambers for your hearts and for your minds. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner. Tin House's Alice Evelyn Yang for the graphic design. Becky Kramer and Jane Nichelle for publicity. And Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of insights ideas and support the music you hear called river song and the music in the introduction heron song come from the collaborative album by todd barton and ursula Le Guin, called music and poetry of the cash thanks to todd barton for granting permission for its use finally thank you ursula k Le Guin, for the 88 years of living that echoes forward in us As she once wrote, walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home.